Thanks, Matt. Let's open in a word of prayer. Father, we thank thee once again for bringing us together this Lord's Day to hear the sound of thy voice through the scriptures known as our Holy Bible. We pray that the Spirit of God will be pleased to move our hearts this morning to hear thee speaking through this precious book, revealing to each and every one of us what thy will is for us this morning. For we ask it in our Savior's name and always for his glory. Amen. I've decided to take a few moments and just give you a, a brief uh, prelude before I start the message this morning. I've been under considerable conviction of late by the Lord in the sloppiness of my preaching. There was a time when I preached with fire and conviction, thus saith the Lord. I preached on hell, damnation, sin, repentance. But of late, I've gotten to be a little fuzzy and warm and have put a lot of people to sleep during the messages. We are dealing with an eternal soul. There are many that fill the churches today who fully believe they are Christians who are saved, but they're not. And there is a day coming when they're going to stand and discover that they were never truly born again. They've heard the message. It's been presented over and over and over again. But they weren't ready to receive. We realize how short life can be. One day, it can be snuffed out by a car accident, a sudden heart attack, or a disease. And then it's too late. The Bible says, now is the day to accept. Now is the day of salvation. Paul tells us many times, examine yourselves, not others. Examine yourselves to see whether ye be in the Lord. That's what I'm going to ask each and every one of you to do this morning before I start the message. Examine yourselves. Are you really in the Lord? Your heart will tell you. Your mind will tell you. But there is a standard that will convict one day. When the books are all open, Christ will open this book that we call the Holy Bible. And you and I will be measured by its standards. And the guilty verdict will be ushered because none of us can measure up unless we are washed by the blood of Jesus Christ, there is actually no hope for any of us to be saved in any other way. So with that in mind, I say good morning and welcome to the Family Bible Hour. This morning we're going to resume our studies on the book of Exodus once again and shall be looking at chapter 15, 1 to 27 as our main text in our sermon. So if you still have your Bibles handy, would you please turn with me to that chapter, chapter 15, verses 1 to 27. And once again, Luke, thank you for reading it always for us to give us a, a refresher 
uh, course on the content of the chapters. And also thank you, Nancy, for every Sunday faithfully playing on the piano uh, for us as well. And we all know how some days it can be very challenging uh, when asked to play a song that none of us knows how to sing or never have sung before. But nonetheless, the Lord always gives us grace to muddle through somehow. So thank you both for your ministry. In our last sermon on the book of Exodus, we looked at chapter 14, which dealt with the destruction of the entire Egyptian army who had pursued the children of Israel and seemed to have been have them trapped as they encamped by the Red Sea at Baal Zephron, Exodus 14.9. Pharaoh, out of anger, had hastily gathered an army of 600 chosen chariots and an army of horsemen. He did not have any foot soldiers because it was an attempt to overtake the mass of humanity and livestock that was fleeing Egypt. And overtake them, they did, at a place called Baal Zephon, over against the Red Sea. But as we saw, it was the Lord's plan all the time to, first of all, dispose of the Egyptians and their Pharaoh God, before he would further lead them into the promised land or into uh, the wilderness as we see in Exodus. Thus the Lord inserted a hedge of protection around the children of Israel in the form of a cloud of smoke by day and a cloud of fire by night behind them, protecting them from the Egyptian army and preventing its advance advance against them. And that pillar of fire and that cloud troubled the host of uh, Egypt, we were told in Exodus 14.24. That divine manifestation is what we call today in theological circles a theophany, the physical appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ. And after having made a path through the Red Sea for the children of Israel to escape to the other side, the Lord then allowed the Egyptian army and Pharaoh to pursue them yet a little further until the entire army was in the epicenter of the Red Sea. The point of no return. The point where it was further back than forward. And as Moses, upon God's command, raised his hand over the sea, the sea began to return to its normal place, engulfing and drowning the entire Egyptian army who had been stranded helplessly in its midst. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day, and they would see their slave masters no more. The chapter ends with verse 31, And Israel saw that great work which the Lord did upon the Egyptians. And the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. Now, dearly beloved, we have a very important lesson here, and I hope none of us misses it. Please notice the order of these two statements. First comes the fear of the Lord. And then, and only then, comes the believing 
of the Lord. It cannot be otherwise. The Bible tells us in Proverbs 9, 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the holy is understanding. Again, in Proverbs 1, 7, we are told the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools, fools despise wisdom and instruction. Without the fear of the Lord, there can be no repentance. Without the fear of the Lord, there can be no repentance. Let me relate to you two personal stories that are true. In my youth, when I was preaching at a great assembly, I was preaching on sin, damnation, and judgment. And a lady got up out of the audience, burst into tears, went down the aisle, crying and screaming and slamming the doors closed, and of course caused a great commotion. I, of course, carried on. At the end of the session, she confronted me and said, How dare you? How dare you say such things to say that I'm going to go to hell if I don't believe this or that? And she raked me through the coals and said, I didn't write the story. What I told you was the gospel truth. A few years later, she got saved and thanked me for that message. But in the meantime, she went through several months of great fear and apprehension because she knew she was headed for hell. I too, in early 1980, was convicted of the Lord and knew that I was on the way to hell and knew that I could do nothing to save myself. And for the next few months, I lived in utter fear, fear that I would fall down a set of stairs, get killed and die and end up in hell, step out on the road, get hit by a car, would end up in hell over and over. When God gets our attention, then we listen. And so without the fear of the Lord, there can never be any repentance. It is only when the sinner is confronted with the holiness of God and how he or she has offended his holy commandments that the lost sinner begins to tremble at the judgment he so rightly deserves. It is then and only then that he or she understands that the holiness of God does not allow God to let sin go unpunished. And that the sinner is hopelessly doomed to save himself. No amount of tears or crying can ever change our sentence of death. It is only then, when the sinner realizes that he is without hope, that he pleads for mercy from the only one who is ever able to grant it and begins to understand that a way has already been made to save his soul. And that way is the cross of Calvary. And oh, how sad it is today that churches are filled with false professors, lost sinners, professing to be saved, but 
denying the Christ that they profess to follow. Oh, I trust that all that come to this little assembly are truly his. Because there can be no more frightening situation to be in than to think that one is saved only to find out on judgment day that he or she was not. Now we come to our main text for this morning's sermon. Exodus chapter 15 verses 1 to 27. Please notice that the 15th chapter does not seem to have any change of scenery or setting, but seems to lead directly into the Song of Moses. This is the very first song recorded for us in Scripture and is also the oldest. It might properly be described as a joyful song of redemption. Singing is always the best vehicle to express a soul's gratitude or joy for one's salvation. I remember when I first got saved, I would travel to work in my car every day, singing at the top of my lungs hymns. And I'd look at the passengers stop beside me at the light. I'd smile at them, singing my heart's content, and the radio wasn't even on. We can say with reasonable confidence that this song was divinely inspired and given to Moses to teach the children of Israel. It was to be their theme song, to remind them of their great God and his power to do whatsoever he promised them. Singing is always the byproduct of a heart that is grateful and is rejoicing. And since the beginning of time, singing was and continues to be an integral part of worshiping God. Even before the creation of man, God's angelic hosts sang songs of praise and worshipped him in thus manner. When Lucifer was first created, we are told that he was created perfect and that he was the choir leader, so to speak, of all the angelic hosts of heaven. Ezekiel twenty-eight thirteen tells us that the workmanship of thy tabrets and of thy pipes was prepared in thee the day that thou was created. Lucifer was created with the mastery of music. All through scripture we read of choirs of angels singing, praising, worshiping God. That too is our privilege every Sunday as we meet for worship to sing songs of praises and thanksgiving to our Savior and Lord. And oh, how very few sing with their hearts today. Let's look more closely at the song of Moses here. In verses 1 to 19, we notice, first of all, that this song is a complete history of Israel's redemption. It tells of Israel's deliverance from Pharaoh's mighty army, how God destroyed them in the Red Sea. It tells of God's miraculous parting of the Red Sea and leading Israel upon dry ground through the middle of the sea. Secondly, we are told something of the character and person of the God of Israel. First of all, verse 3, he is a man of war, and that his name is the Lord. Now notice that, please. 
capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Lord. He is the Lord, the strength of Israel and their salvation. And now that he has delivered them from the bondage of their enemies, he is now their God. He is not just the God of their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but he is now their God. And since he is now their God, they will prepare a place for him and will exalt him, for there is none like him in holiness or in doing wonders. Verse 11. Thirdly, though the Lord is joyful to the children of Israel, he shall be a terror to the enemies of Israel as he is today a terror to all sinners. And because he is a terror to all of Israel's enemies, they will not stand in Israel's way as long as he leads them. Verses 14 to 16. The people shall hear and be afraid Sorrow shall take hold on the inhabitants of Palestina. Then the dukes of Edom shall be amazed. The mighty men of Moab, trembling, shall take hold upon them. All the inhabitants of Canaan shall melt away. Fear and dread shall fall upon them. By the greatness of thine arm, they shall be as still as a stone, till thy people pass over, O Lord." Till the people pass over, which thou hast purchased. And fourthly, the song presents before them their promised prophetic future. Verses 17 to 18. Thou shalt bring them in and plant them in the mountain of thine inheritance. In the place, O Lord, which thou hast made for thee to dwell in. In the sanctuary, O Lord, which thy hands have established, the Lord shall reign forever and ever. God will bring them eventually into the land of Canaan, just as he had promised his fathers. Not only did he bring them out of the land of bondage, but one day he will bring them into the land of rest, into the land of inheritance. It is also worth noting here a little change in the titles in verse 17, in the first part of that verse, we have, O Lord, all capital letters, capital L-O-R-D, which translates in the Hebrew, Jehovah, the self-existent one, the eternal one. But later on in that same verse, we read, O Lord, capital L, and small letter O, small letter R, and small letter D, which translates in the Hebrew Adonai, or Sovereign God, or Master. The same name used in Genesis 18.3 when Abraham entertained the Lord and the two angels. And so we see here in Exodus 15.17 another reference to Christ, our Savior. Then in verses 20 to 21, we are given a glimpse into Miriam's role 
and ministry concerning the Song of Moses. Up until this point, it was Moses who had the responsibility of teaching this song to the men and passing it down to them. But Miriam here is recorded in verse 20 as the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, who took the timbrel and led the women in a joyful celebration of song and dancing before the Lord. Now it is interesting that she is called the prophetess and the sister of Aaron. No mention of her being the sister of Moses. She, it seems, is given a position of subordination to Moses and not on the same plane as he. Aaron, too, was subordinate to Moses. She is the first person that, of that particular household to whom prophetic gifts are ascribed. But as we shall see later on, she becomes puffed up, or perhaps because of her gift, and rebels against Moses and his exalted position. She challenged Moses openly in Numbers chapter 12, verse 2, saying, Hath the Lord indeed spoken only by Moses? Hath he not spoken also by us? And the Lord heard it. As we read the rest of the story, we see how angry the Lord became over her rebellion and brought the plague of leprosy upon her. She had to then undergo the purification process and in the process was shut out or shut away from the rest of the congregation until she was cleansed. Her sin was severely and immediately punished. She foolishly placed herself on par with Moses, who was divinely appointed head of the whole nation, and she exalted herself above the congregation of the Lord. And oh, how we as God's people today need to be careful to not overstep our boundaries, to not be presumptuous about our own importance. We need to always humbly acknowledge that he is Lord and he sets the order and parameters of our service for him. Then we come to the last portion of scripture in this chapter, verses 22 to 27 which deals with Israel's journey into the wilderness of Shur to a place called Mara, where we are told the waters were bitter and the people could not drink them as a result. Immediately upon their arrival, the people began to murmur against Moses, asking, what shall we drink? Verse 24. They clamored against Moses as though he were the one to blame. Notice how quickly sinners forget their blessings and soon focus on their obstacles to life. How quickly they have forgotten the Lord's miraculous provisions and protection for them. Would he have led them thus far only to abandon them? Nay, but he would indeed prove them, not once, 
but many times to come. And so Moses cried unto the Lord, verse 25, and Moses showed him a tree, and the Lord showed him a tree, which when he had cast into the waters, the waters were made sweet. There he made for them a statute and an ordinance, and there he proved them. Oh, dear friends, do you see a lovely picture of our blessed Savior here? He, God, showed Moses a tree, just as God has shown each of us a tree, the tree of Calvary, <coughs> on which our blessed Savior hung and tasted the bitter waters of affliction for us, so that we might taste the living waters that he has to offer and never thirst again. The people drank and their thirst was quenched, but also in that place the Lord made for them a statute and an ordinance, and there he proved them. If thou wilt diligently hearken to the voice of the Lord thy God, and wilt do that which is right in his sight, and wilt give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of these diseases upon thee, which I have brought upon the Egyptians, for I am the Lord that healeth thee. Please notice three important things in this pronouncement from the Lord. First, when God calls us, he always calls us to do that which is right in his sight. He always calls his people to a life of righteousness and separation from the worldly view of life. If there has not been a transformation in your life, then you have not been called nor converted, as the scriptures say. The Lord Jesus, when talking to Nicodemus that night in John 3, verses 3 to 7, emphasized that except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. So many today claim to be Christians. The church is filled with false professors who have never been truly born again. There are many preachers also who have never known Christ as Savior and Lord, and yet they are preaching. For if they had, then they would be manifesting the fruits of the Spirit. They would be living transformed lives, lives devoted to serving their God and Savior, lives which would win souls for Christ. Instead, Christ has been designated to the back of the sanctuary, where he is forced to watch wonderful programs and entertainment take priority. And only when the goats have been thoroughly entertained, then and only then, some occasional reference may be made to Christ and service for him. Secondly, God always gives his expectations for his people before he judges them. His commandments clearly outline what he expects of his people. And here's the really interesting thing. He expects all of us to do exactly the same thing 
and that is to obey them. So Israel, now that they are his people, will be called to obedience, and they will be tested over and over and over again. And finally, if they are obedient, then God who redeemed them and delivered them out of bondage will not put any of the diseases upon them which he put upon the Egyptians. And so he ends his discourse by reminding them that he is the Lord that healeth thee. Verse 26. The chapter ends with verse 27, with the children of Israel resting at Elam, where God provided them with 12 wells of water, one well for each tribe, so that there would be no fighting or disputing over water rights. In addition, he provided for them 70 palm trees to cast some shade during the noontide heat. Again, reminding us that God can always prepare for us a little oasis in the midst of our journey, even if it is in the middle of the wilderness. And so we come to the end of our sermon for this morning. But as always, I must ask you this. Are you saved? Are you really saved? What evidence is there in your life to prove you belong to Christ? And where does Christ fit on your list of priorities? Third? Fourth? Or is he even on your list? If he is not first, then we must all examine ourselves to see if we be in the faith, says the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Prove your own selves. Put yourselves to the test. Have we done that? Let's pray. Father, we thank thee for this precious book, the Holy Bible. We thank thee, Father, that it tells us not only of the love of God and the grace and mercy of our blessed Savior, but it also warns the sinner of a coming judgment of eternal hellfire unless we repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Father, we pray that as we leave this place here this morning, that these words might sink into our hearts, that we might reconsider more seriously the eternal state of our families, our neighbors, our co-workers, and seek to pray for them and seek to witness for them, come what may. Part us now, we pray with thy blessings, and keep us from evil, and if the Lord be not come, May it please thee once again to bring us around thy table next Lord's Day. For we always ask it in his name and for his glory. Amen.